Hi, thank you so much for joining us for this first session of the Professional Practices Alliance live Zoominar series. This is a multidisciplinary series to help professional services firms survive and thrive through the current crisis. Today's session is focused on firefighting to survive the crisis and the next session, which is on Thursday 7th of May, 9.30 till 10.30, is focusing on after the crisis the strategic advanced planning for firms to thrive after the crisis is over. We have a very fine lineup of well-known expert PPA speakers today. We have Corin Staves of Morris Turner Gardner, who is a leading partnership law and SRA regulation specialist. Zulon Begum of CM Murray, who is a leading partnership law and M&A specialist. Claire Watkins of Bozicott LLP, who is a partnership accountant and a professional practices advisor. David Shufflebotham of Pepup Consulting, a partner remuneration specialist and in a previous life, an HR director at a leading international law firm. Rob Millard of Cambridge Strategy Group, who is a very well-known and highly regarded law firm management consultant. And finally, Sarah Chilton of CM Murray, a leading partnership and employment law specialist. And my name is Claire Murray of CM Murray. I am your session chair for today, and I am a partnership and employment law specialist. And I hear you say, what is the Professional Practices Alliance, which is hosting this event? Well, the Alliance is a collaboration of specialist advisors to professional services firms, which include Morris Turner Gardner, CM Murray, Bozicott, Pepup Consulting, Cambridge Strategy, etc. We are very happy to take questions as we go along. As I say, we are recording this for a podcast, which we will share. We'd be very happy for you to like and share on. So let's jump straight into our first topic, firefighting for professional services firms to survive the COVID-19 crisis. And I wonder, Rob, if you might just give us a flavour of how firms are responding and you know, the major differences that you're seeing in approach from professional services firms in terms of how they've responded to the crisis? Responding to this compared to responding to the previous crisis. Uh, but let's, let's start by leaping back even to the crisis just before that, which was 1999 and the, uh, the dot-com crash. And at that time, there was a very prominent um, uh, San Francisco Bay Area Silicon Valley firm, uh, which still exists and thrives today. I don't have their permission to, to, to say who, but you, uh, you may guess from the story. Uh, and, and their partner sat down and, uh, at the midst of the crisis and uh, Altheimer and Gray and Brobeck, Otter and Haddon, a couple of other firms were going bankrupt. And um, so were their clients. And they had a discussion and what they decided is, um, well, we believe in the mix of transaction litigation. We're going to stick with that. Uh, we believe in technology, even though it's falling about our ears. Uh, so we're going to double down on technology. Uh, but most of all, we like practicing together. We actually like being partners. So we're all going to just put our shoulder to the wheel and, um, and make this work. And I, I think that's a, such a strong metaphor for now because firms are having to ask themselves the same questions. Are our practices the right mix? Uh, what about our clients? Are we in the right industry sectors? Have we got the right clients? Are the clients that we have now still going to be in business in the future? Which are still going to be our key clients? And uh, do we like working together? Uh, that, that's a very important question. What I'm seeing, what I'm hearing from law firm leaders now that's different to 2009 
was 2009. It was all about uh, profit per equity partner being preserved and no partner uh, being allowed to be damaged. And we're seeing a very different approach now. We're, we're seeing a, a, a reapproach that is far more responsive to what society might think of the firm and what clients might think of the firm and what the firm's own people might think of their firm uh, when we come out of this crisis, because it'll be a lot quicker, so the economists seem to think, than uh, 2009. It will be interesting to see, though, whether the extent to which when we come out um, and we all sort of stop you know, we slightly lose that loving feeling that we have at the moment, whether actually firms will revert to type and be kind of become pep obsessed again, which actually drives a lot of cultures when you sort of strip away the veneer. Well, yes, and to a degree, they need to become revenue obsessed, if not pep obsessed, because of course, with all the deferrals, there's their partner uh, tax deferral and there's a VAT deferral, and, and those are going to come home to roost in quarter one, 2021. So it's really important for firms to be uh, at the top of their game through the rest of this year to be able to gen generate the cash to be able to make up those costs that are being deferred. And others are going to talk about that later. But the immediate firefighting, I think, uh, has largely been done. Uh, and the tactical all hands on deck, uh, let's just fight the fire, uh, that, that's ongoing, but it's largely being done. I think what firms need to be doing now is thinking in a far more measured strategic way about what will be the same when we come out of this and, and what will be different? Because yes, as, as we come out of this crisis, we are going to lose the loving feeling, as you put it, Claire. And um, uh, so, some of the, 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 the tensions that existed before within the firm and between firms and their clients are going to reemerge and there may be less tolerance for, 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 those, for those tensions and those contradictions. And those may well lead to crises that are uh, internal crises that, that firms um, need to deal with when they should be focused on other things. Thank you. Claire, are you seeing any differences in different sectors of professional practice in terms of how they're responding and, and the impact that's being felt? Yes, I think, I think there's a little bit. I think, um, I think probably accountancy firms, um, there's a little bit of a delay sometimes between an economic crisis and it actually affecting us. Although, and that's partly because we have the, the luxury of recurring work. But that said, um, you know, things like uh, deals, corporate finance deals and, and uh, major projects, they stop virtually straight away. And, you know, that affects us the same way it does um, law firms as well. Um, so I think there is a little bit of a difference. I think what I've noticed with our clients is that at the beginning, there was definitely some panic. Um, and I think it took a while for leaders of, of law firms to think about what message they wanted to get out to their teams. And to, and to try and make that message, if they could, as positive as possible, because it was all very new to everyone. And, and I think that the focus is on what you can, or the focus was at the beginning of this, on what you can control. Try and deal with what you can control. Get your team up and running. Um, and actually, I have to say, I'm really, I was really surprised that so many, in fact, all um, the, the clients and the firms that we know were up and running incredibly quickly. Their IT teams must have been, well, I expect they've got a few more grey hairs at the end of this, but yeah. they've done a sterling job. They really have. And even firms which were not geared up to work from home at all and always went into the office, they, I presume they use Amazon and goodness knows who, but they had uh, screens and what have you, you know, rushing around the country and they were all set up. So things like that and, and encouraging communication early on with the teams through this kind of thing or, you know, all the different tech that we're all now so um, familiar with. 
uh, getting cash in as quickly as possible. Um, and, and the discussion around furloughing, which I know we'll, we'll come on to a, a little bit later on, I think at the beginning that was a bit of a sort of, well, do, we, do we make redundancies, do we furlough staff, there was a bit of, you know, we need to do something, we have to do it now. And then gradually there was a bit more, well, okay, let's think about the situation and, and really plan sensibly. Mm. Do you, do you think in terms of approaches there's been any difference where you know firms have had senior management who are you know kind of like battle hardened where they've you know they've been in place for quite a long time they've seen sort of the Brexit referendum uh, uh, impact they've seen the the great financial crisis are there responses I mean is it good or bad to have had to have a senior management that's sort of battle hardened or actually are there new perspectives that are coming through from with new blood in senior management? No, I think it's good if that's the word when people have seen this kind of thing before they, you know, it is one of my, one of my partners said, you know, do you remember Y2K and how everybody panicked about that? And, you know, every computer was going to crash and, and, and of course nothing happened. And so you sort of, you know, that there's a plan that you need to put in place and you need to keep everybody calm. And I think some of the firms that have been around a bit longer, or maybe the leaders of those firms have been around a bit longer, have been able to adapt to that more quickly. I think the difference this time is, the, the tech that is available and I don't know to what extent the leaders of those firms have been the ones who've said oh I've heard of this thing called Zoom I suspect they hadn't <laughs> in which case it's the you know the younger members of the team who've said well we can you know we can have virtual coffees we can have virtual lunches with clients we can keep things going in that way so it's been I think it's been more collaborative in that respect. And it really, I think it really emphasises the importance of the success, potential success for firms of actually maintaining that intergenerational balance. So, you know, firms that have actually moved on at a much, age, much earlier age than others will actually retain some of that experience in their operations, but equally bringing in the younger generation as well into management gives that gives a really good balance of experience and ideas and um, you know, I think that that sort of helps hedge them against um, the sort of different risks that firms are facing. Is there anything else that anyone wants to say about what you're seeing in terms of, um, you know, firms living their values, um, you know, or are we sort of reverting to type? David? Uh, yeah, I think uh, at this point, um, anybody with a really good internal comms person or somebody who's got a really good feel for that within a leadership team is absolutely worth their weight in gold because it's not just about getting the message out there in terms of content it's about the tone as well and making sure that that tone is absolutely on all fours to Claire's point about not engendering panic is absolutely on all fours with how the firm communicates in style and tone in the normal times so I think that is really important. Obviously, the tone will be more urgent uh, and the items it's, it's conveying are more significant more often. But keeping that alignment between um, the firm that everybody knows on a day-to-day -day basis and the firm in crisis, I think is really critical. Uh, and, and to your point on the true colours coming out, I think that, uh, you know, we'll come on and talk about red flags later, but I think that is one of the red flags that you might pick up in a business, especially internally, is if the tone has materially changed. Mm. I have to say, someone, uh, or I, I read yesterday that one of the most important things you can do as a leader is to basically take out um, your uh, 
core values again. Stick them beside you on your wall, share them with your team, just to remind everyone about who we are and what we're about and how we kind of measure ourselves and what we do. And I thought that was actually a really interesting, um, it was a, just a really interesting reminder because it sort of sense checks everything that you do against those values and whether you're being true to them. And people will call you on them if you, if you don't. Um, so Claire, can we just look at um, sort of the financial steps, the range of financial steps that you see professional services firms taking um, to protect their firm and also issues around, you know, financing? Yeah, I think, I mean, there are various things out there that I think people are quite uh, well aware of now, but with the, the things that we've seen clients um, doing um, now over the last few weeks is uh, the number one is preserving cash. So I think going to your clients and, and saying, look, we need you to pay us, particularly those really slow paying clients and, and just saying that we're all in this together. We need to be paid if they can't arrange payment there and then, then when can you? So that that can inform the, the cash flow forecast for, for your firm. Um, there are various things. There's there's the VAT deferral, um, so that can be deferred to uh, next year to April 2021. Um, firms are taking advantage of that. There's PAYE deferral, which um, my payroll colleagues will probably know more than I do. But I gather that's that's quite quick to do, and it can actually be arranged over the phone in a lot of cases because they don't seem to do due diligence on it, um, as far as I'm aware. There are various time to pay arrangements that you might be able to put in place. Um, I think everyone will be familiar with the July payment on account that uh, can be deferred. I mean, this is deferral, as Rob said earlier, not getting rid of entirely. So it will still come back at, at some point in the future. Um, talking to your bank about existing banking arrangements, um, uh, you know, taking payment holidays if you can on, well, not just on, on loans, but on, um, you know, property, for example, if that's something that can be arranged. Uh, there have been various um, furloughing arrangements going on, I think, um, and uh, as well as some salary cuts. And the salary cuts that we've seen among our clients seem to range from around 2% cuts, and that would be for the lower paid um, members of the team, up to about 40%, uh, and for the higher paid people, and then partners. That's a big, that's a big cut. It is a big cut. It is yeah. a big cut. Yeah, yeah, it's quite, it's quite wide, the variation. And then partners also at least matching that or in a lot of cases just stopping distributions entirely or stopping the next distribution and then assessing month by month or, you know, following quarter. So some, what, maintaining monthly drawings but stopping distributions or reducing drawings as well? Well, I think it depends what the firms do typically. I think if it's monthly drawings, then uh, they tend to be lower anyway. So maybe looking ahead and saying, well, we'll do the next two months, but then put a halt um, on, on any sort of catch-up payments. If there's a quarterly catch-up distribution that would normally be larger, then that's, that's stopped, basically. Mm. Um, or, or cutting them, just cutting them across um, all partners. But I mean, obviously, if you've got to make salary cuts, then that's got to affect the partners as well. W with regard to the, the uh, coronavirus business interruption loan scheme, which I gather is commonly being known as C-bills now, um, We've, we've had quite a lot of firms wanting to do this and some of them, and maybe it's, it's just um, a reflection on the good financial state of most of our clients, but a lot of them have been rejected for the loans. And that's really because I think they've gone for the loans in the first place thinking that they want an extra buffer, but that's not really what it's designed for. So it's really designed for businesses that are going to run out of cash in X number of months. 
And if you're going to apply for that loan, you have to really have shown that you've put in place other measures. So the furloughing, the, the cutting salaries, um, you know, repayment holidays, that kind of thing. You've got to really build up your story and have a, a forecast and a, and a business plan that shows the bank why you need the funds, how you think you're going to be able to repay it, and really how that loan is going to help you keep the business going. And sometimes that is, a, is something that's missing, I think, in which case our, our firm is getting involved in helping clients put that together. Great, thank you. And things around the um, uh, rent, I mean, you do see firms sort of going to landlords and seeing if there's any flexibility. I don't know if there's anything you want to add on that. Yeah, I think that happens. I mean, that happened well before this crisis that, you know, in certain circumstances, if a firm can't afford to pay its rent, then it goes to its landlord and said, look, says, look, you either we default and you get absolutely nothing. Or can we come to some sort of arrangement? And, uh, you know, some landlords will realise that the sensible thing to do is come to an arrangement. I think that will be happening a lot more now. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if we might just, um, unless anyone would specifically like just to briefly add anything on the finance side? Nope, then we might just move on to, um, to risk management issues and, and regulation, Corin. So what are, uh, what are you seeing as the sort of the key risk management issues for firms to address, particularly law firms? Thanks, Claire. Um, well, the first one was obviously making sure that everybody's healthy and kept healthy, but that has largely been dealt with now. Um, second was business continuity, uh, making sure that everybody could work remotely to the extent that people were being asked to work remotely, um, working out the IT, the infrastructure, the telephony, those sorts of questions. But as you said at the beginning of the at the beginning of this. Uh, Zoominar, um, that has largely been dealt with and any teething problems that people have have been ironed out, which is fantastic news. Um, I think that um, the, the practical issues have, have all really been dealt with. So now firms are really focused on the really critical literally business continuity, continuing the finance and the success of the firm. So finance issues, and I'm not going to touch on those again, but cash, 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 cash is obviously absolutely critical. And then when you're thinking about risk management, it's back to thinking about everything we were thinking about before, but just looking at it through this new lens of the remote working and the changed business environment and how that's impact, impacting on you. I think additional risks or risks that have been elevated up the agenda are cyber risks. They were obviously important, but I think we're all now much more vulnerable than we were before, uh, not least because we are adapting so quickly and adopting new technologies so quickly. Um, information security, I think, is really important. Again, especially for law firms, it's always been a really high priority, but with a change in working practices, how are we going to manage information? Um, if you breach your... Um, duties of confidentiality you've got a problem with uh, the SRA if you're a law firm the information commissioner if it's uh, particularly if it's personal sensitive information um, now that we're all working separately and relying on technology are we going to have more fat finger breaches that are going to cause big issues and it's those sorts of things so it's the same risks as before but very much viewed from a very different perspective. Hmm. Okay thank you and uh, um, can can you um, just from the SRA's perspective? I mean, are they are they taking a much more chilled approach now to regulation because you, they see that we're all dealing with these 
really significant, in some cases, life or death, whether it's individually or actually for the firms, are they, are they being, going to be a bit more relaxed about regulation, do you think? Well, as I think I've mentioned before, Claire, I'm not, I'm not sure that chilled or relaxed is the way that they put it. Um, I think the phrase they use is pragmatic. Pragmatic. Um, and they, they, they do talk about being... It's helpful, <laughs> About being more pragmatic uh, and recognising that firms have had to adapt very quickly and take that into account. I mean, they've had to do the same themselves, so they genuinely do have empathy there. Um, but I am perhaps a little skeptical in the sense that the obligations that we have as regulated professionals have not changed so they can't be chilled about certain things because there are certain outcomes that we have to achieve and if we fail to achieve them that's a failure um so i think we need to be very cautious about um feeling relaxed because the SRA have said it's going to be pragmatic we've also got to bear in mind that if there was some kind of breach the SRA are going to be looking at it through the lens of hindsight Um, so if no serious damage was caused maybe they can be pragmatic but if serious damage was caused um, then then they're unlikely to be um, relaxed chilled (laughs) about that outcome Presumably, though, um, that, and that, that issue of context, I think, and timing is quite important. Presumably, when firms are facing decisions that they have to make, which will need to be sense checked from a regulatory perspective, they should really be documenting that at the moment what they're doing and why and what the context was um, for their actions. I absolutely agree. I mean, it's clear from the new standards of regulations, which have been enforced since November, that documenting and having a written record of why you've made the decisions you've made and how you feel you're achieving your regulatory outcomes is absolutely vital. Um, and, And more so now when, as I say, you might look back at this time with through the lens of hindsight and people might ask why did you do that and why did you feel that was appropriate so written records will be vital yeah and just from a personal perspective for partners and I know this is slightly doom and gloom but um, I'm assuming that now is the time to ensure you've got a will and (laughs) that you have things like guardianship arrangements confirmed and maybe even lasting powers of attorney just think just from a pure Mm. partner personal perspective um, I know it's slightly doom and gloom but you know sort of risk management type steps personally think, as well as yeah. for the firm. I think you're absolutely right we are all um considering our own our own mortality in a way that we we weren't before I think the way that we've broached it with clients is to talk about the fact that we all have a little more time at home so we can get our personal affairs in order yeah. uh, rather than saying that, that the risks have increased for each and every one of us um but you're absolutely right it's it's sensible to have a will it's sensible to have lasting powers of attorney around your property and finance your health and welfare um decisions around life-sustaining care for example could be quite um, important to some people yeah. um And the other thing I would mention, both for partners and for law firms or professional firms generally, um, and again, I'm sorry, it's all very doom and gloom, but um, a lot of firms have put in place um, either um, life insurance or um, income protection type policies. And so um, partners might be worried about the levels of protection that they have. So it could be that the partnership secretary function is able to support the partner body and put their minds at rest so they can focus on earning and looking after clients um, by helping them understand what protections are there or in the worst case there for their families if if the worst should happen great thank you so much so just 
actually, you know what, I'm going to ask, I'm just going to pick up a question that we've received. Um, and thank you very much for, for that question. Um, going back just quickly to the finances, uh, could someone give us a feel as to what sort of percentage drop in revenue that firms are planning for? I mean, I personally saw, read something this morning that said that some firms will kind of rebudgeting on the basis of about a 30% uh, drop uh, in income, at least for a, you know, for a period. But I don't know what others, others' views are on that. Maybe Claire, Rob, David, for example. Um, it's, it's by no means scientific uh, because it's just anecdotal from all the conversations I've had with clients who are now working on their forecasts and, and you know, looking at them again. Um, I think we're probably seeing something slightly less, more like 20%, but it really depends on the type of business. And, you know, some law firms are, and I know this is an awful thing to say, but it taps into what you just said, Claire, they're going to do quite well out of this. Others are not. Um, so I think in the round, it looks like it's a sort of average of about 20%, but quite half, I think they're sort of predicting ahead to the end of whatever financial year they're in at the moment. Some firms may actually have multiple budgets. They might have the apocalyptic, oh, neo-apocalyptic, and then a kind of a lesser, sort of less of less of an impact type budget. I think that's. I think yes. I think you're right. I mean, if they don't have that kind of, they should have the budget of things as they are at the moment. The budget of the worst case scenario, the Armageddon budget, and then a sort of realistic Armageddon budget, if that makes sense. Because um, you know, you you well from one extreme to the other, really. Uh, but I think, yeah, generally what we're seeing is, is at the moment it's about 20%, but maybe that will change. Corinne? Corinne, do you have a quick comment? <laughs> uh, that absolutely resonates with some survey data that we collected uh, this week um, and the, the vast majority of respondents. So 67% um, of respondents expected a dip in turnover of between 10 and 30%. Maybe it, was, maybe it was your survey results yeah, that possibly, I read. I yes. think that was it. <laughs> um, and, then, and then it drops off from those firms that believe that it will be more than 30%. It's, it, it's 10% of those respondents. Um, as I mentioned when we were offline, I'm not sure that, that that survey data is statistically significant in terms of number of respondents, but it's certainly very interesting. Yeah, and I can definitely recommend Corin's serve, uh, MTG survey and having a look at the results um, on that. Just some really interesting feedback. Rob, yes, did you, did you want to? Yes, uh, I, I was speaking to a, a consultant, an accountant who specialises in smaller firms yesterday. He may be on this call, in which case uh, he, can, he can climb on the chat and, and talk himself. But he was saying amongst smaller firms, uh, sort of five to, five to 15 million pound turnover. Some of them are talking about 30 to 40 percent. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess maybe size has got something to do with it. And, and given that that correlates to the mix of clients. I think that's I think that's probably right, Rob. And I would just add to that that I mean, that's our space as well. We, we deal with anything from, you know, good startups to really, you know, quite large firms. Um, but I think what, what we're finding is with our smaller end firms, they tend to be quite niche. And that's the, the protection, I think, unless they're in a niche area that is really going to, you know, like uh, corporate transactions, which is probably going to be the thing that's, that's hit for now. But I think that the niche ones are slightly protected. So maybe that's why amongst ours, it's looking like more like 20%. But mm. I think you're right. That is the case with the smaller firms. Great. Thank you. Now, look, I just want to slightly stare into the abyss for a second and just get from from you as a group what you know because we have all been through prior crises etc what in your respective experience 
and I might start with Zulon first. Um, do you identify as, do you see as kind of like the real red flags, maybe in, maybe not individually, but when collectively with other red flags, um, you think, oh, this, this actually, this firm is actually potentially in a meltdown down situation and needs some sort of significant intervention. Um, Zulon, if, what for you would be some of the red flags? Um, I think one of the early indicators of problems are when firms are trying to put in place some of these emergency cash conservation measures that have just been discussed. So things like um, reducing drawings, um, distributions, um, partner capital calls. If, if those decisions require a partner vote and partners actually are not on board with those decisions and don't approve them, then that's a, a clear indication that, that A, they don't have confidence in management and B, they may not even have confidence in the firm. And then so soon after those types of decisions, you often see partners handing in their notice and trying to jump the ship, et cetera. So the, you know, in that kind of situation, um, senior management really need to be thinking very carefully about what they do next. And it may be that they need to accelerate right to the next level of critical, critical um, crisis management and think of uh, you know, more drastic measures like um, looking for a merger partner for example. or even um, depending on the, on the type of business it is, trying to sell off parts that might be attractive to buyers and winding up winding down the rest of the business. I, I hate to be the voice of doom and gloom, but um, we saw this kind of uh, play out quite publicly in, in um, you know, quite public law firm insolvencies like KWM. And one of the early indicators was partners um, leaving and partners um, refusing a, par a partner capital call. Mm, okay, thank you. Any other significant red flags um, that, David? Oh, hi, Claire. Uh, just to sort of um, add and echo what Zulon is saying there, I think I'd be, I'd be most worried about firms that have got very individualistic um, cultures and methods of profit distribution um, and that are used to fully distributing profit. Um, and if you want to add to that sort of uh, cocktail, uh, toxic cocktail in these circumstances, if they've been on a higher recent hiring spree with uh, guaranteed profit agreements in place mm -hmm. uh, with recently hired partners. So there's sort of a, a, that, that smorgasbord of, of issues that if you keep on adding the issues, you're starting to, 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 to think a bit um, um, uh, more uh, right, dimly about a firm, I guess. Yeah. Thank you. Any any other comments from Red Flags? Rob, I know you had. So, oh, sorry, Sarah, go for it. No, I, I was just going to add um, before we move on from sort of the people aspect of it that, um, as obviously Zulon's touched on the partners and you know looking at partners refusing capital calls and leaving, but actually watch out for associates leaving as well because that's a really good indicator of culture and what people are feeling, um, like you know at the associate level, at the clearer level, and also at support staff level. Um, and if you if people at those levels are trying to move in this market, that's a massive warning sign because it's not the time to move jobs really if you want security the people who have employment rights and have job security already if they're being pushed to move then you know i think you really need to be looking at kind of what's going wrong there and that could be about lack of communication and there being a sense um, amongst the non-partner part of the workforce that there's a disconnect between the management and them and that's something that's going to be really important to address at this time 
Right. Thank you. Um, Rob. Yes, I just wanted to take the, the, the concept of, of partners leaving an inch deeper because that, to me, that's a real red flag. Uh, as you know, I've been doing a, a research project for a, a, quite a while now and looking at uh, over 70 large law firm mergers over the past 20 years. Mm. The received wisdom in the, uh, in the literature, the merger literature, is that most mergers are a bad thing. They, they destroy value. They, they, they fail ultimately. And, and uh, I don't think that's true of professional service firm mergers. Certainly my research has shown that the rate of success is far higher. But one of the critical uh, red flags pre to, pr prior to a merger is departure of, of, t of, of key talent. Right. And I think what firms need to do then is to sit down and look at their viability, uh, the, the business model viability, the strategic viability. It goes far beyond cash. And, uh, and, and just consider then whether mergers, uh, a merger would be, consider a merger as a serious strategic consideration along with all the other possibilities. Because mergers do come in waves. Anybody who knows anything about mergers would know that. And, and the waves normally follow <clears throat> a systemic disruption like te techno technological or uh, regulatory or hard economic knock. And this is a very hard, sharp, might be short, but it's still a very sharp knock. And there will be more mergers after this. So it's something that, if, that I think firms need to consider as a strategic option when they're still in a position to make sensible decisions about it rather than just lurching into it as a last resort. So, so viewing it proactively as a strategy yes. rather than a distressed response, which, yes. which actually reads very, leads very nicely into a question that we've had. Um, you, query over whether, and it's picking up a point you said, uh, that the, um, I can't remember who was saying earlier about smaller firms, and actually it was Claire with the, and Rob about the, the, the more significant drops that some smaller firms in certain brackets um, may be anticipating. It's query over whether now is the time for more consolidation between smaller firms to hedge off the revenue drops, sort of quick M and A deals in that regard. And you know, is anyone seeing much activity in that regard as yet? Uh, shall, shall I answer? Yeah, um, for as for activity at the moment, no. I think everybody's focused on just trying to keep things going, but I, I expect that will be the case. I mean, the, the trouble with these the, the talks about mergers is there's the there's a sort of familiar refrain that if you have one firm that's doing badly and it merges with another firm that's doing perhaps slightly better, you've just got one much larger firm that's really not doing very well either. But um, but I know that in some cases that is the only way that that firms can continue or the clients can can go on to another firm and something merge resources and you can come up with something that can still carry on. Um, I, so I agree with that, especially if it's part of a bigger strategic longer term plan. I can think of one firm in particular where it, a couple of decades ago where someone said to me, oh, you know, you take two B grade firms and put them together all you're going to get is at best another B grade firm and actually with, with rights with the rights of senior management and good strategic long-term vision they've really they've actually created a bit of an A grade firm uh, as a result sort of international firm and so I think it's the, it's it's kind of context and strategy isn't it not just a reaction I d it definitely is, and I think uh, some some of the firms that are in trouble and would would have been in trouble before the pandemic hit, they're sometimes in trouble because just the infrastructure of the firm is not up to the job. And so, if they merge into a firm that has a really good infrastructure and a really good leadership, 
then then they can make a success of it and we've certainly seen um you know plenty of those over the years but right at this minute that's not a subject that is not a topic of conversation with with my clients at the moment they're more focused on how do we just get through the next few months before we think about strategy corinne you think you wanted to say something it was just to add that in this context, all the things that a lot of firms are now doing in terms of a really strong focus on finance, cutting, um, cutting extraneous um, costs, um, are all actually really um, sensible steps to be become merger ready. So in terms of positioning yourself to try and be merger ready, there's a lot of things that firm have, firms have to do. One on the financial side, making sure that you're in, in good shape. And, and I'm sorry to be doom and gloom again, but if you're SRA regulated, looking at what the SRA considers important if you're proposing to close down your firm is really important. So client files, um, client relationships, those sorts of things, having orderly arrangements for there. Because if you get to the point where you can't merge and you have to shut your doors you're looking at runoff insurance which is a, a huge expense that firms don't want to incur on top of everything else so in a way being merger ready being closure ready and um, surviving this crisis a lot of the steps are going to be the same really good really great point I would also add to that is into that mix is that there are some firms out there particularly the listed firms who have um, you know, you know uh, a cash box effectively to help them acquire businesses and they those businesses might actually find this environment a good way to seek out um, undervalued assets um, and firms in distress which have uh, you know uh, underlying that have um, good clients and um, uh, parts of their businesses is actually quite profitable so uh, we saw the nights actually closed two deals just before the crisis hit and i know they have um, cash on, on board to make further acquisitions uh, and i wouldn't be surprised if they go on a spending spree um uh, uh, you know after the immediate uh, pressures of, of this crisis are over interesting so i think the message i take from that is that there's firstly there's no shame in merger that actually be prepared for it be everything you're doing is probably going to make you merger ready anyway and actually if it's done in a strategic well thought out way rather than just a, a distress response it can actually be really good for everyone um but equally if you are in a distress situation it can provide a safe harbor um, and avoid the sort of closure and runoff issues that Corin was talking about. So I think, you know, kind of a slightly more positive attitude to mergers would be welcome. In terms of final red flag from my perspective um, is, is being overextended in terms of office space. You know, what kind of premises, just one of the big things that is really hard to shift. And if, if, you, don't, if, you, know, if you don't have the revenues, the profitability to support it, uh, and you're just overextended and you've taken on new premises, new lease, that can be very difficult proposition um, but uh, what we might do quickly now is kind of just come on to the constitutional issues that some of the firms are considering and and some of these are are some of the responses as well to the red flag so you know we've talked in the past about uh, or we talked on this this uh, chat about you know the extent to which um, obviously firms firstly you know reducing partner drawings uh, delaying distributions requiring capital calls um, and also, um, you know, seeking to delay perhaps payment of annuities or other kind of former partner arrangements um, on the one hand, but then more significant sort of um, uh, uh, 
or different restrictions that firms are considering in terms of um, sort of, uh, you know, keeping firms within the partnership uh, for a longer period. And, and I just wondered if maybe Zulan and maybe Corin, you might speak to, you know, some of the constitutional issues around these, um, these kind of steps that firms are trying to take, maybe first the financial and then secondly, the restraining partners kind of making them hang around longer than they might otherwise want. Too long. Yeah, so, so uh, many of the measures that um, we've been discussing about conserving cash, so um, uh, reducing drawings, reducing uh, or deferring distributions, making partner capital calls, um, reducing payments that are due to uh, retired or outgoing partners. Some of those decisions will need to be made in accordance with the partnership agreement. So firms need to be very carefully looking at what, what constitutional rights and obligations and powers they have under their partnership or LLP deed. Um, what, the, what, you, what firms don't want to do is get into uh, an issue about um, not doing things in accordance with their constitutional requirements and getting into a bun fight with partners about it. Um, you know, getting into partnership disputes is, is, is not the right to do, time to do that, um, quite frankly. Um, so, it, I mean, there, there are kind of, the decisions that we firms will be looking to make will probably fall into three buckets. So well, some of those will be delegated to um, senior management, um, in which case it can be quite helpful because senior management can take decisions much quicker and more flexibly, uh, which can be important in, in a crisis situation like this. Other decisions will need to be made by partners um, through a partner vote, uh, and that presents particular issues in the lockdown. So if you have to have partner meetings, how do you do that when people can't attend in person? And again, you need to look very carefully at provisions around proxy voting, um, attendance by telephone and video conferencing, and whether those things are permitted under your partnership agreement. And again, if you don't follow the correct process, you may find um, that some of the decisions that you take may be invalid uh, and challengeable by partners. Um, and certain, then certain other decision, decisions will actually require individual partners' consent. And usually decisions around reducing fixed profit shares, for example, of um, the fixed share partners um, may require individual partner consent, uh, as well as things like annuities and other payments due to retiring partners or people who have retired um, for uh, in times past and again you may need their particular consent in order to reduce or defer any payments due to them what i would say in terms of all the all these kind of decision making in in the firm that even if your partnership agreement doesn't strictly require you to consult partners or um you know, you know give them information about what you're doing as senior management in this kind of free febrile atmosphere it's actually communication is absolutely key um, to bring your partners along with you. Um, so you, uh, senior management really do need to factor, factor that in, that even if they, they're not required to consult partners, that they should do that, particularly where it affects the financial rights of those partners going forward. Um, and the other thing I would mention in terms of um, decision-making by senior management is that any decisions do have to be made on a rational basis and made in good faith. Um, and that can be easy in this situation where, of course, there's a rational decision why you might want to be reducing partners' drawings. But if you're going to treat certain, certain individuals differently or certain constituencies differently, so if you have different tiers of partnership, think very carefully as to why you're doing that and where, where, whether there's a fair reason for that. 
because in it, if there isn't, then again, it might be a bit of a challenge. And presumably document your, again, it's all about the documentation, how you know your reasoning, the context, the, the rationale that it's being done in the business interest, the good in, the, the best interests of the firm. Thank you. Thanks so much. Corinne, do you want to speak just a bit about sort of, you know, notice periods and, and lock-ins and all the good stuff that people kind of, you know, think about when they think that, the firm may be a there may be a flight risks within the firm absolutely um, can i just build on something that zulon said with which i Please. entirely agreed um i think it's all those issues really come to the fore and we see them as being big issues in practice where you have decision making split between the equity partners and the fixed share partners quite often fundamental decisions are vested to a large part in the equity partners and that causes tension in good times so goodness knows how much tension it'll cause in in not so good times and then the second point on annuitants and former partners they'll probably need separate advice and they haven't got a great deal of incentive to agree uh, different arrangements so that separate advice is going to add cost and delay so um it, it could mean that firms are really um struggling with that but to your actual question, Claire, I mean, hopefully firms have got a well-drafted LLP agreement and they are usually LLs, LLPs as we know, um, because it's going to be difficult now to um, implement constitutional change. Um, hopefully we'll see a robust suite of clauses with um, voluntary um, retirement um, compulsory retirement without notice obviously expulsion for cause we might see people using that more regularly because you haven't got that luxury of saying or oh, let's you know um, let's um, take our time or you know we've got enough money to go around um, waiting rooms and lock-in provisions are rare and to be fair are quite controversial um, but when you look at it through the again through the lens of crisis and, and everybody pulling together, you can sort of see what their value might be to stop a situation where partners start running for the door when it starts looking like things are getting difficult. And we've seen examples in the past um, of firms just imploding because the, the partners are, are, are all leaving and the clients therefore feel that they can't stay with the firm. I mean, obviously, that's assuming that all partners act in accordance with the deed we can't stop partners from leaving in breach of their duties um but there's not a great deal that a, that a, a constitution can do that's more than that it's interesting because i mean i agree that the uh waiting room and also the lock-in clauses can be quite controversial in mm. in some cases when people, partners being asked to sign up to it, it can actually accelerate an exodus mm. um it, you know people don't want to sign up to it um it could accelerate the problem but equally it can be a very effective um way of sort of just weathering a particular crisis thank yeah. you so we're, we're going to move on to the um employee well the employee and staffing issues and i'm going to sort of turn to sarah and david um it particularly uh for this i just wonder first in terms of um employee well-being what you see firms doing um sort of now and what they should be thinking about as well in terms of both mental and physical well-being um and i don't know maybe david would you like to go first and then come to sarah yeah i think that um Firms over the last five years, especially with a greater focus on an awareness of uh, mental health issues, have generally um, got a good eye on this in normal times. But of course, we were in very changed circumstances. So those um, um, scriptures about um, 
what you do to work safely from home and remote working and the sort of things you do. We've sort of got to look through that from the other end of the telescope now, if you like, because the issues that you had there in the minds of the leadership teams of these firms often was, can we trust people to work from home? Well, the reality is now people are working from home and they're doing it really, really well. Mm. And I've always been an advocate for the, for the point of view that uh, remote working is brilliant for lawyers because um, you work on the clock anyway. You might not be charging on the basis of time, but your budgeting and your time recording is all there for everybody to see. Um, and therefore, there's, no, there's almost no better profession um, than professional service timekeepers for um, being able to trust them when they work remotely. There was an interesting thing in the lawyer just this morning, actually, which said that um, f that some managing partners were reporting that actually for those teams that were busy, productivity was up working from home rather than being down, which I think was the, the received wisdom from some as to, you know, what would the, you know, the response would be. Yeah. Sarah, and, and, did, oh, sorry. David. Sorry. I just just to finish that point. Claire, and there's the rub, I think, for me in terms of well-being, because what happens now when people are working from home, especially when they're really busy, and I know, uh, I know actually Sarah mentioned this on our, on our pre-call this morning, we haven't got the necessary prompts and on and off switches that we used to have when we go into the office. So we go to the gym, you know, we have our coffee, we go to the gym, mm. we get to the office. We've got those prompts and those on off switches that don't exist when you're busy and at home, that you've got to have a mind to the fact that you can really easily overwork at home when you're busy. Yes, absolutely. Sarah? I mean, all I say on that very specific point is accept those Joe Wicks followers who've obviously got that 9 till 9.30 slot <laughs> farmed out in their day. Uh, I'm not one of those people. Um, uh, my, my day starts with chocolate, which is a complete contradiction to Joe Wicks. Um, but back to the real stuff. Um, so I think one of the things employers and firms should be thinking about now is how we move forward. So um, as David says, people have had a really good eye on mental well-being. Um, from you know for a number of years now and the working from home situation has now developed and hopefully a lot of firms and fee earners are getting used to that and being as we say productive and, and efficient at home working and the firms are starting to trust that that works but at some point some part of the workforce will gradually have to start getting back to the office because ultimately that will be the long-term goal of most firms albeit there will inevitably be some who use this as an opportunity I think to take a very different approach to how they work but for those people who are going back I think the the issue is going to be well how do we manage that from a well-being and health and safety perspective and there are two aspects there there's the physical well-being and there's the mental well-being I think the mental well-being comes from, uh, I suppose, both uh, a change again. So change is sometimes quite stressful for people. And particularly um, if people are going back into an office, not only will there be the usual sort of sensory overload of you've actually been very used to focusing and you've got yourself well trained to work in a quite isolated environment with peace and quiet. Uh, for some people, obviously, some people will be having to work with uh, screaming children in the background. So I do appreciate this. There's two different uh, backgrounds there. But, you know, whatever you've done, you've got yourself used to working in a particular environment and you're going back into a very different environment. So there's that normal transitional difficulty that people will have. But on top of that, we're going to have a, a massively increased level of anxiety amongst people about the fact of them having to go back to, to work. So people will be anxious about their health, they'll be anxious about going on public transport, they'll be anxious about sitting 
in an environment with other people who are not members of their household. And whenever that happens, we will never, I don't think, be in a situation where the government will be able to say to us, there is now no risk or the risk is so minimal that you know we can all relax about going back. We will have to, at some point, re-enter and reintegrate with people in an environment where people's anxiety levels will be high. So I think the mental well-being side of things is really around that. But then that leads on to the physical well-being and the, and the health and safety issues around actually how do we protect our workforces from contracting the virus when we're back in an environment where the virus won't be gone from society. It will still be a threat out there. It will hopefully be less of a prevalent um, threat. Less people will hopefully have it and be a threat, but nevertheless, it will be there. And how do we best manage that risk? And I think there's a couple of issues that arise from that. One is around how do we manage employees who say, I'm not coming to work because there's a risk. Now, they may be in putting a risk on the agenda of management, making a protected disclosure. Uh, so uh, they may therefore get whistleblowing protection. So that's where they disclose a potential health and safety risk or concern, and then they're protected from suffering a detriment. So that would be you know, being sent home or being uh, forced into the office potentially, or having any pay consequences or being treated adversely at performance, um, appraisal process time. Um, so that's one sort of legalistic issue. But the other one is just, you know, how do you manage it? So firms should be thinking about what measures they might be putting in place in weeks and months to come. So do people do, uh, you know, compulsory wearing of masks? Do they have the space to socially distance in the office? Do they want to put in place um, structured working so not everyone's in at the same time? So, you know, people coming in on rotation on days, but also throughout one day, people coming in at different times, people using facilities like shared facilities at different times and um, so all these practical things that people will need to think about and I think at the moment it's hard to plan because we are operating in a bit of an information vacuum as to what things will be like when we come to go back but nevertheless I think that firms should be at least thinking about these things and contemplating what measures they might or might not take how practical certain measures might be so that when we are at the point of going back um, and when we have government guidance as to what people should and shouldn't be doing, firms have already thought about how practical some of those measures might be so that they can take quick decisions so that if there's a resourcing issue, they've already thought about that resourcing issue so that they are well prepared. And to the extent possible, they should start communicating with employees early to even if it's just to say, look, we are thinking about this and we are mindful of your well-being in this situation because people might already be be getting anxious about what happens and the more stuff that comes out of government about we might be lifting this lockdown we might be going into partial lockdown the more staff will become anxious about how that impacts them if they're suddenly told you have to be back in the office and they're kind of not sure what safety measures are in in place to protect them so i think early communication and early planning albeit right now without the specifics available to us would be my um, bit of advice on on that issue that's great. And firms can be doing that right now. So I'm conscious of time. Uh, we've caught a lot of ground in an hour. I just want to do one final question for you all, which is, um, you know, what is the one thing, just the one very briefly in like 10 seconds, 10, 15 seconds each, that you think the professional services could be doing now to prepare for exit from the lockdown? Zulon, do you want to? Oh, I can't hear you. Gonna hear. I'm gonna go. Yeah, go for it. Sorry, I'm I'm unmuted. I, I would just say that um, just to put a positive spin on things, that 
don't let a good crisis go to a waste. Um, learn, 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 learn the lessons of this one and um, where the gaps are and try and fill those gaps. So just taking one thing, for example, your partnership or LLP agreement, there'll be lots, you know, there'll be lots of things in there that don't envisage a situation like this. Um, so find those gaps and then try and fill them as soon as possible afterwards. Great. Thank you. Claire? I would say revisit your business plan and because we're so short on time I think when you look at the section marked property and you may have been thinking in the past that you might need extra space because you're busting out of your office at the moment another think about that because maybe you realize there are some quite handy alternatives now brilliant David um, do some really really good analysis of your uh, the depth of your client relationships mm -hmm. you'll be able to identify really um, quickly where those relationships are properly um, established and deep and those that are, uh, are built on shallow foundations. Uh, Corin? Well, you've not left me with much, but I was going to say clients, David. <laughs> I, I think that's right. Professional services firms, the only reason we are here is to serve our clients. And so, and that's what will bring us through this crisis, those strong relationships, that revenue, frankly, that is generated from them. So clients, clients, clients. Sarah? I would say people. So the second, the second thing uh, along side clients is look after your number one resource, which is the people that you have. So that's your partners and your staff. And I would say in two ways, actually look after them. But the second thing is communicate with them so that they think and know that you're looking after them. It's all very well making plans, but if you don't tell anyone about them, people still sit there in a vacuum. And if you come out of this crisis without the key people who have those client relationships and who have the skills and knowledge of your business, then you're not going to be in a very good position if you've lost them along the way. And let, let's end where we started, Rob. Thanks, Claire. And I'd like to just build on what David and Corinne said and re repeat clients uh, appropriate. Um, and the, the trite thing is get closer to your clients. But, uh, you know, for some time, GCs have complained about the expectation gap that has existed between what they need and what part law firm partners think they need. And that's going to come back with a vengeance. And at the same time, uh, the client businesses are changing. And it surprises me still how few GC, how many GCs are saying that they're not having substantive discussions with the external legal counsel about how their legal needs are changing. And that's absolutely front and center in my mind of what the conversation should be right now. It's absolutely, uh, it, it's, a, it's as dangerous a world for them as it is for law firms. And uh, yeah, that, that's my closing statement. Thank you very much. Um, and, and from myself personally, I think I'd, I'd sort of end where I started, which, which is actually encouraging an environment of collaboration internally rather than competition will help go a long way um, it, it, to sort of weather this crisis. So look, I want to thank the panel for an amazing discussion. I thought that was so interesting. I really enjoyed it. And thank you so much to everyone for listening in, for your questions, which we really appreciate. You'll be able to listen to the podcast when it comes out. And you'll be able to share it with your colleagues. Please do. We'd really appreciate that. I hope you'll join us for our next in this series on the 7th of May about thriving. Um, so strategically planning for coming out of the, the crisis. And we'll talk about that in much more detail. I want to thank you again for joining us. Thank you for the panel and I hope you have a great day. Thank you very much. Take care.